Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 27th of February. In our all-age messy church service and in this podcast, we'll be thinking about the laws that God gave to Israel. Law and justice is the theme in much of our music today, and we've just heard The Clash sing I Fought the Law and the Law Won. At the end of the service, we'll hear Johnny Cash sing Walk the Line, his song about trying to stay sober for the sake of his relationships. A few notices. Our church magazine for March is now available as hard copy or online. Our next baptismal class will be starting soon. If you're interested in exploring baptism with no strings attached, then do please speak to me. Our Lent groups begin on Tuesday this week and you can find further details in today's email or if you're receiving a CD on the flyer in your envelope. Details are also on the church website. If you'd like information about the Zoom link, then do please let me know. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting for ever. The laws of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free from guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
You alone are God. You alone are Lord. You alone are the one who always has been and always will be. God who spoke worlds into being, who spoke life into us, who spoke words of correction when we had gone astray and spoke words of incarnation to show us how to live and enable us to live through your living word. Jesus Christ, our Lord, we come to you to praise your name, one God in three and three in one. Forgive us our faults for Jesus' sake. Empower our words and actions by your Spirit, that all we say and do may bring glory to you at all times. Lord God, you have spoken, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery. But we've not followed you as we should, and so we pray, Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said you shall have no other gods before me, where another God has taken your place in our hearts. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said you shall not make for yourself an idol, where we have worshipped the work of our own hands. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, where we've dishonoured your name by what we've said. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, where we've worked too hard and too long and expected others to do so. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said, honour your father and your mother, where we've resented, ignored and shamed our parents as we have resented, ignored and shamed you. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Where we have done such things by hand or mouth or mind, Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, where we have been anything less than totally truthful in our dealings with others. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. You said you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour, where we have been more focused on getting than giving, following trends rather than following you. Lord, forgive us, free us from slavery to sin. For we ask this in the name of the only one who never broke one of these laws, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, beginning at the first verse. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not make any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honour your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely against your neighbour, you must not covet your neighbour's house, you must not covet your neighbour's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. Three months after Moses led the people out of Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. They camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and it was here that God was to speak at some length to Moses about the covenant that he would make with his people. Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, and Moses was reminded of what God had done and why. You've seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses' task was to report what God had said to the people, which he did, and then he returned up the mountain to deliver to God their response. God told Moses that the people must now prepare themselves to hear the word of the holy God. And after they'd spent three days in preparation, God spoke to the people from out of the cloud that had descended, and he gave them ten words. Well, that's the way the Hebrew text describes what was said, but we more commonly know God's message as the Ten Commandments. The rest of the message that God had for the people was given to Moses, who would later speak to the people. So perhaps part of the reason that the Ten Commandments occupy a special place in our understanding of the law of Moses is because these were the only words that were spoken directly by God to his people. The other reason is that these were the words that were written by the finger of God on two tablets of stone. The original tablets were broken by Moses when he came down the mountain, and found that Aaron had led the people in some sort of pagan orgy. The same laws were then rewritten by Moses on new pieces of stone, and they were later put into the ark and carried with the people in their 40 years of wandering in the desert. These Ten Commandments clearly carry a certain importance in the way that they were given personally by God, and then written on tablets and carried with the people. So we might find it surprising that in historic Judaism, these ten laws were not given any greater value than any of the hundreds of other laws that were not spoken or recorded in the same way. 
Indeed, the Jewish rabbis in the first few centuries of the Christian era went so far as to teach that daily recitation of these Ten Commandments should be discontinued, as they believed that undue emphasis was being placed on these laws over the hundreds of others. It's interesting to remember that when Jesus was asked which was the most important commandment, he responded, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, what's interesting to note here is that neither of these commandments is a direct quotation from what we call the Ten Commandments. So here we have confirmation that while important, these Ten Commandments had no greater value to Jesus than others given later and not written on stone. Yet, even while post-Christian Judaism was playing down the significance of these Ten Commandments, it became common to see these particular commandments as giving an ideological basis to all the other commandments in the law of Moses. We'll come back to this idea of viewing these commandments as a basis for behaviour before I finish. But before then, let's look at the first of these Ten Commandments and the one that's perhaps the basis for the commandment that Jesus deemed to be the most important. Jesus suggested that the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the second line of what is known as the Shema, so called after the first word of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, which we translate into English as hear, as in hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this reminds us one of the fundamental differences between the faith of Israel and the other nations around them. They believed in the uniqueness and singularity of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses with that mysterious saying, I am who I am. Now, does this mean that those who first followed this God believed that the God whom they worshipped was the only God? No. In fact, the whole point seems to be that God's people were to have nothing to do with other gods. This was like a marriage service. The bride was not being told that there were no other men in the world, just that she was not to look at other men now that she'd married her husband. Later in her history, this monogamous relationship between Israel and her God developed into something else. In her early years, Israel was a small band of tribes amongst other tribes, each having their own God. Israel worshipped their God, while the other tribes took a pick-and-mix attitude and worshipped whoever they chose. I like to think of this as these other tribes as glory hunters, in that they worshipped whoever was top of the league of gods. Israel's relationship with their God changed over time, until she saw the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God of all the nations, and finally that the God who had called them was the only God and that all the gods of all the other nations were merely made of wood, with their only power being that conferred by those who worship them. One of the best examples of this, and an example of the often missed humour in the Bible, comes in the book of Isaiah. There we read these words of the prophet about a man making an idol. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill and warms himself. For the rest of the wood he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. 
So by the time Isaiah was speaking these words, not only was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the only God whom Israel must worship, all other gods were human creations rather than the creator of all humanity and everything else besides. The oneness of God has always been a controversial point. The other gods around Israel often had consorts and were understood to be as sexually active as the people they'd created. We know this in the stories of the Greek and Roman gods, but it was also true of the Canaanite gods whose sexual activity and fertility was linked to the fertility of the land, of livestock and of families. But the God of Israel was not like these other gods. The God of Israel was one. When Christians began to speak of God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, God's Son as having been born of a woman and the Son as having two natures, human and divine, alarm bells began to go off where monotheism was strictly held. So Jesus' opponents accused him of blasphemy. Jewish opponents of Christianity in the time of the early church and since claim that Christianity undermined the oneness of God. Islam's understanding of the oneness of God also rules out the Christian understanding of Jesus. Perhaps it isn't surprising that the Trinity is a stumbling block for both Judaism and Islam, as it's hardly understood by most Christians. But we believe that while God is three persons, God is also one, just as he was understood by the patriarchs of ancient Israel. The uniqueness of the God of Israel had other serious implications for God's people in the Old Testament. When Israel and Judah were under threat from the empires of Assyria and Babylon, as well as from the smaller nations around them, they got up to all sorts of shenanigans. All of these other nations had their own gods, and the words of the prophets and the leaders of Israel and Judah not to form alliances with the other nations had a twofold basis. One was obviously that they should trust the God who'd called them out of Egypt, rather than trust the kings of these other nations. But forming an alliance with another nation also gave tacit acknowledgement to that other nation's gods. If you became what is known as a vassal, that is a slave nation, of one of the great empires like Babylon or Assyria, then you took on their gods too. The relationship between Israel and her God and her neighbours and their gods is one that often features in the Old Testament. We've seen how the injunction to avoid relationships with other nations was intended to keep Israel true to her worship of the one true God. But this injunction was most often heard with regard to personal relationships with warnings about marrying out, that is diluting the bloodline by incorporating Gentile genes. On other occasions, it's Israel who is on the attack rather than the defensive. The story of Joseph and Daniel are similar in that they both concern a Jewish hero whose wisdom is attributed to his faith in the God of Israel. Joseph got himself out of jail by interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and eventually becoming Egypt's chancellor in status, second only to Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's own wise men were unable to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and so the power of the God of Israel was shown to extend beyond those who were his own people. Daniel's story is similar, although even more demonstrative of the power of Israel's God. Daniel was one of four young Jewish men who were chosen by their Babylonian captors to be brought up as Babylonians. Rather than buy into the Babylonian culture, Daniel kept his own name, 
rather than take the Babylonian name he was given, Belteshazzar, which means something like Prince of Bel, Bel being one of the Babylonians' gods. Daniel was also careful not to eat or drink anything inconsistent with the law of Moses. Like Joseph, Daniel became known for his skill at interpreting the king's dreams. Just as happened with the pharaoh, King Nebuchadnezzar called for his sorcerers and astrologers to interpret a dream that he had, but they couldn't. And the book of Daniel then explicitly tells how God explained the dream to Daniel, who then explained it to the king. Nebuchadnezzar's reaction was different from Pharaoh's. When Pharaoh simply offered Joseph a job, the king fell at Daniel's feet and paid homage to him and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery to me. This reaction from a Gentile king is right on the money. It's just what Daniel, as a faithful Jew, wanted to hear. His God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses, was also the God of the universe. Having spent so long thinking about this one commandment, it makes me feel that we could think about the others at some time in the future, and maybe we will. These are ancient documents, but we need to understand what they have to say to us. This first commandment is clearly saying that the focus of our lives must be our relationship with God. We are to have no other gods before him. And while it's unlikely that Christian people will be tempted into worshipping other gods in the way that might have been the case with the Israelites in Canaan, we have other distractions. One of the reasons given for church attendance being so much lower now than, say, 70 years ago, is that there were fewer distractions in those days. Whether or not that's true, there are clearly many opportunities for Christians to be distracted for putting their faith in God. When I was a lad, it used to be said that there were three vices, drinking, smoking and going with fast women. I was never sure what fast women meant, but I have an idea it wasn't referring to Dina Asher-Smith. There are many more causes of addictions today, and Christians are no less likely to succumb than others. The current crisis of the economy also puts the pressure on Christians to put their faith in God. If we've been relying on the inexorable rise in house prices to secure our future, we may have to look elsewhere for that security. Are we prepared to put the faith that we had in our house or our pension in our God? I just throw in one final thought on this particular commandment, which is that there may be a modern analogy to the command on the Israelites not to make alliances with other nations, as this compromise their faith in the one God. Is it possible that there might be a comparison between this and Christian groups who form alliances with organisations who do worship other gods? An obvious example might be sharing in a project with a partner who takes lottery funding. Another might be investing in a bank which lends money to arms manufacturers or tobacco companies. What about joining in with Comet Relief and the sometimes questionable ethos of some of its material? Now, I'm not saying that any of these actions are right or wrong, but I'm saying that the commandments do still have relevance for us in the 21st century. These commandments can be seen as the sign of the covenant that God has made. Rather than telling people how they should live, the Hebrew words also have the meaning of telling how it is for a person living under this covenant that God has made, such that he will be their God and they will be his people. 
Rather than thou shalt not have any gods beside me, make idols, kill, commit adultery, these words can be understood as describing life under this covenant where a person will have no gods beside me, won't make idols, won't kill, won't commit adultery. These covenant laws describe the new world in which Israel would live. You may be aware of what's sometimes called the culture wars. Misinformation is often an element of this so-called war, such as a few years ago when it was suggested that Americans were not allowed to say Merry Christmas for fear of offending people of other faiths. The Ten Commandments were once a part of this war when there was a move to have them carved into large blocks of stone and placed outside American courthouses. One of these Ten Commandment memorials weighed over two tonnes and was taken around by a commandment supporter on the back of a truck. It was lifted onto the back of the truck by a crane that buckled under the weight each time. Is this what the commandments, these ten words of God, have become? A crane, or rather a back-breaking load, to be carried around? That was how the idols were described by Isaiah, burdens carried on the backs of weary beasts. But God did not say, Here are ten commandments, obey them. He began by reminding the people of their freedom, the freedom he gave them when he led them out of Egypt. At first hearing, the commandments that follow sound a discordant note with this talk of freedom. All those negatives, the sort of thing that gives Christianity a bad name. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. But these seeming negatives actually offer freedom. Because the Lord is your God, the commandments affirm, you are free not to need any other gods. You are free to rest on the seventh day, free from the tyranny of lifeless idols, free from murder, stealing and covetousness as ways to establish yourself in the land. God granted freedom with his commandments. He did not prescribe burdens, nor does he create a benchmark against which we could only fail. He offered a way of living that was life-affirming, not joy-denying. The problem was that the people didn't live up to it, which was why there had to be a new covenant, a new covenant not sealed by the blood of animals, but by the sacrifice of God's Son. Now that would really deliver freedom.
Let us pray. Dear Lord, author of all peace, who through your Son reconciled us to yourself, we pray for peace in our world at a time of heightened tensions. We pray for our governments and political leaders, for wise counsel and sound initiative so that the tanks and soldiers might withdraw. For diplomats, that they may have space to negotiate. For the people of Ukraine, that their close ties with the people of Russia and other neighbours will remain strong, even in the face of military threat. We pray that all governments commit time to dialogue and understanding, respect the will and freedom of all peoples, invest in welfare and alleviation of poverty, and reject militarism and the threat of violence. May Christ's teaching and example be our inspiration. May hearts and minds be changed. And may your Holy Spirit be at work, transforming each of us day by day through your everlasting grace and mercy. Amen. In a moment, our last song, Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. But first, a final prayer. May the law of God enable you to live each day knowing the love of God the Father, the liberty of Jesus Christ, and the life of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Because you're mine, I walk the line 